So what percentage of the Republican debate the other night did you actually get through? Sadly, I watched every minute of it, though I have to say I watched some of it on replay. Because you had to take a break, right? I mean, you couldn't sit through two straight hours. Chris, you're letting listeners in on something that they don't really realize. I had to go walk the dog in the middle of the debate. And so I called you with my instant analysis with about 20 minutes to go on the debate. But I did end up watching. You did end up watching the rest. Yes. That was a bit painful, which leads only marginally facetiously to the first question, which is, should Republicans even bother to have another debate? Donald Trump doesn't think so. So take that for what it's worth. The question's a little bit facetious, but should they even bother to have another debate? Well, it's not quite clear what they accomplished. I mean, as I wrote in my analysis last night, I don't think any of them actually improved themselves relative to Donald Trump. It's a bad place to be, to be a second tier candidate. And that tier is way behind the first tier. And there's only one guy in the first tier. And the rest of them don't seem to be willing to do what it takes to win points away from the first tier. And that means you have to really go after Donald Trump. You have to have a coherent strategy. You can't just take a shot here, take a shot there, and expect that you're going to convince voters that you should replace Donald Trump. That's not the way this is going to work. So instead, what they do is they end up fighting with each other. I mean, that was the biggest mess that I've ever seen. It was horrible. And it was weird because they did start, there were a couple of direct shots around Trump not being there. DeSantis took one, Christie took one, and they kind of half tied their attacks a little bit to policies, although not fully. And Chris Christie kind of, there was an opportunity missed when he went down the Donald Duck route, and he actually could have potentially landed a bit of more direct criticism to Trump and didn't. But then Tim Scott took the thing completely off the rails. He'd been sitting on this, obviously, since the first debate and turned it and went after Vivek saying that we were all bought and paid for. And if you saw Vivek's face, it was like, wait, we were all just going after Donald Trump. Now you've taken it into this personal, ridiculous attack about something that was said five weeks ago. Like, by the way, who cares? I forgot what I even said five weeks ago. That really just set the avalanche running downhill, where then it was just attack after attack and noise and mess and overspeak. And by the way, has anyone even figured out what Tim Scott and Nikki Haley were talking about? <laughs> no, it's a great thing. I mean, the one thing Nikki Haley did say something, and again, the main person involved in her exchange was Vivek Ramaswamy. And so maybe it's Ramaswamy who is this disruptive force on this stage, and nobody can get past this guy because he's the one who will constantly defend everything done. Donald Trump does. But anyway, Nikki Haley, she got exasperated at one point and it was really the only real memorable zinger I think I remember from the entire debate, which was she said something along the lines of, every time I hear you, I feel a bit dumber. And watching the debate, actually all of us who watch the debate are a little bit dumber right now. I mean, the quality of the conversation was just ridiculous. You know, I wrote about it last night saying it was the worst debate I'd ever seen. And I've watched a few of these things, but I took almost nothing positive away from it. And so while you might be able to talk about one candidate or the other besting the guy on the other side of the stage or something like this, it amounts to nothing at this point because the front runner, Donald Trump, is leading the Republican field with 50 
to 55, maybe even 60% of the vote. And I know you're not good at math, Chris. I sat next to you in math class in graduate school. But when you have more than 50%, that means all the other guys aren't going to be able to win. And your point that they need to find a way to go after Trump, that if you want to take on the leader, you actually have to go after the leader. I'm wondering if there's just flat out not a way at this point to go after Trump, because the needle that they have to thread is, on the one hand, going after Trump and saying all the things that are bad about him, I guess, if you're going after him, you know, criticize him for policies or lack of policies or the indictments. But every time he gets indicted, he only gets more popular with the base. So on the one hand, you have to find the topics about which to attack him while simultaneously not offending, quote, the base. You can't just automatically lose whatever it is, 30, 35, 40% of the Republican Party and those voters. And you're saying, you know, they haven't done it or they're not doing it. I'm just wondering, maybe they just flat out can't do it. Maybe they're just right now for these candidates, there isn't a way. I mean, we can make all the jokes we want. They are politicians. They do understand politics. They have other people around them to help them think about strategies and approaches. And you would think they would have gamed it all out. So giving them the benefit of the doubt that they do have some political sense and know what they're doing, the fact that they're not doing it might just be evidence that it's just not possible right now. Well, I think that's definitely true. And I think these candidates are proving themselves incapable of taking on Trump at this point. Even when they try, they tend to fall But is that incompetence or is that there's just not even a path that could get somebody there if it were executed against perfectly? I don't know the answer to that. There might be a path, but I think the question might be, are these people really running to become the Republican nominee? After that debate last night, I ended up thinking maybe Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are really running for vice president. Maybe Chris Christie just wants to be an MSNBC host. Maybe Vivek Ramaswamy, maybe he wants a radio show. Maybe Ron DeSantis realizes there's no chance he can beat Trump in 2024, but he's trying to hold himself out in 2028. And guys like Mike Pence, I think he probably just thinks, well, I was vice president. I kind of have to run for president, don't I? I'm not sure they're running for president because they're not acting like they're running for president. They're not running for president of this cycle. And I agree with you. And we've talked about it. Some of them surely are running for cabinet positions. I would see Nikki Haley, I guess, Tim Scott, and certainly DeSantis running for 2028. But then that goes back to the original half facetious, half not question. Should they bother to have another debate? I mean, what Trump said was he thinks this is really bad for the RNC for Republicans to keep having these debates. And as a result, they really shouldn't. I half agree with him. I think that that debate was just bad for the Republican brand. You know who else agrees with him? Joe Biden cut an ad using Ron DeSantis criticizing Donald Trump and why Donald Trump wasn't showing up for this debate. Do you know what Joe Biden said after he played the clips of Ron DeSantis? He said those magic words, I approve this message. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's one of these things where, and I actually had several readers email me last night saying, why don't they just put clips of this thing up as a Democratic campaign ad? I mean, it was just such a food fight and it doesn't make any of them look any good. 
you know, the one thing about this debate versus the first debate is they did try, at least at the very beginning, to take a few shots at Donald Trump. And so anytime you see that back and forth between Republicans, you know, violating Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, they start criticizing each other. That's interesting. Anyway, the Biden campaign took note of that, and I'm sure there's more video clips coming. What's next then for Republicans? You ran a piece that seemed to indicate that the panic might be setting in. The piece was titled, Panicking Republicans Turn to Glenn Youngkin. And isn't this just a page out of the old playbook, hoping against hope that some 11th hour candidate will come in and then all of a sudden, you know, everything will be great. If only we bring in Michael Bloomberg then things can be set straight. But this piece that you hosted, it was written by Robert Costa. Some of the biggest Republican donors in the country will converge next month at the historic Cavalier Hotel in Virginia Beach for a two-day meeting to rally behind Governor Glenn Youngkin. The closed gathering named the Red Vest Retreat after the fleece Youngkin wore during his 2021 campaign will begin October 17th and be focused officially on the Republican effort to win full control of the General Assembly in Virginia's upcoming elections. But unofficially, several donors tell me, it will be an opportunity for them to try to push, if not shove, Youngkin into the Republican presidential race. Is this anything? Is this just panic? And is this just so reminiscent of 2016 when another PE fellow, Mitt Romney, was wheeled out to try to get into the race late in the stages of that 2016 campaign? You have this interesting thing among the Republicans where the Republican base loves Donald Trump. It's the Republican establishment that is really wary. And so all of these private equity guys, of which Glenn Youngkin is one of them, and he is appealing to them, he's a guy who happened to win an election, and he won an election in a swing state. And his formula for doing so, he pretty much ignored Donald Trump. He didn't say anything one way or another, and he managed to win the election. The problem with that is, in this Republican primary, not saying anything negative about Donald Trump isn't going to win you the nomination. You know, I wrote a piece called Republican Math, I think you cited earlier, which was about how Donald Trump's from the first to the second debate, his support grew from about 52% to 55% in the polling averages. Donald Trump is leading the entire rest of the GOP field by 16 percentage points. And these are the very same ones who are wary of taking on Donald Trump because he's supported by a majority of Republican voters out there. So Glenn Youngkin, who pretty much has the same formula, he won't criticize Donald Trump. How is someone who doesn't criticize Donald Trump going to appeal to 55 percent of the Republican voters who already support Donald Trump? They just don't see it. It's one of these things where the Republican establishment is nervous, and they have good reason to be nervous. This is a guy who's been indicted four times, 91 criminal charges. This is a guy who has been found guilty of sexual assault. This is a guy whose company has just been found guilty of committing large-scale financial fraud and is going to be banned from New York State. This is amazing. No wonder the Republican establishment's a little bit worried about this guy. How can this guy possibly win a general election? And they're looking for anybody who has just got a cleaner record on this. I think they're worried even beyond that. And we've talked about some of this as well in some of our offline conversations. So first of all, if you want to know exactly who's not going to win a campaign, take a look at whoever the Republican establishment is putting all their money behind, and you can rest pretty well assured that that person isn't having terribly much success. 
We can ask Jeb Bush how he feels. We can ask Ron DeSantis this year. The establishment has been putting money behind the establishment candidates trying to anoint. And that leads to the second area where I think the establishment is really worried. I mean, yes, about those specifics about Trump. But beyond that, I think what the real concern for the establishment is, is that the establishment is gone that they don't have any support within the Republican Party. It is not their party anymore. And they're trying to keep it going somehow, and they can't. Trump took over the party. There was some great analysis that I was listening to. He did a hostile takeover, and you know what? He won. It's his party. And so I think panic is the right word. They should be panicked, the Republican establishment, because that party just doesn't exist. And the populism that you're seeing runs counter to very much what the historical Republicans have stood for. So I do think there's panic. I think there's panic about Trump as a candidate. I think there's panic about the party as a whole. And we're the establishment that really came to power following Reagan. Where is their home today? When you speak of the establishment, one of those establishment figures was former Speaker Paul Ryan, who gave some interesting comments this week where he said, talking about Trump, he said, look, Trump has caused Republicans to lose three elections in a row, the 2018 midterms, in 2020, of course, and then in the 2022 midterms when Republicans should have taken control of the Senate, but did not and barely were able to take control of the House when everyone was predicting a red wave. And so he looks at Donald Trump as just this weight on the party who is going to drive them to defeat in 2024 as well. And his point was, if you go back to January of 2021, and January 6th has just happened, what Paul Ryan wants to know is, of those suburban voters, the swing voters in that 2020 election, how did anything that happened on January 6th in the subsequent aftermath and what we've learned about that day, how has any of those people who didn't vote for Donald Trump, how are they now swayed to vote for Donald Trump? And so he makes a good point about the, just the toxicity of Trump. And that's without even mentioning what we just discussed, all of the legal cases against him, all of that baggage that he has on top of this. And the other thing that people don't make enough of, this is a guy who is getting more extreme in his rhetoric. He's calling for the execution of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's insane. Retired General Barry McCaffrey, he said, someone's going to get hurt here and it's going to be Donald Trump's fault. He is egging on his supporters to violence. This is not going to end well. No, this does not feel like something that's going to end well. It is escalating. But then again, so is my blood pressure as you're mentioning Paul Ryan's comments about how problematic Trump is and how, oh gosh, everything that happened in January of 2021, how that's you know really hurt voters. My question to Paul Ryan would be something along the lines of, Hmm. And do you think that anything that happened in the first two years, January 2017 and into 2018, when you were speaker and had shifted from saying that Trump was going to be a problem, but then helping coddle him once he was in office, did that do anything to help push the country into the direction we're in now? Hearing the people who helped facilitate what occurred hearing them then turn against what has resulted when so many people were pointing out directionally where things would go, you know, where democracy might be headed. The call for violence and calling for the execution of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs, 
that really is shocking, right? That is really, really shocking to hear. But is it such a massive leap from telling crowds in campaign rallies back in 2015 or 2016, oh, you know, someone gets in your way or they're saying, you know, just knock them out. I'll pay your legal bills. I mean, there is a path there. And, you know, Paul Ryan was one of the people in a position to help slow that path. Do you remember how many times I can't comment on every little thing that Trump says. And I, I, I didn't hear that. Or, I, you know, I, I'm not aware of that statement. And I'm saying even once after Trump got into office, you know, a guy like Paul Ryan was one of the people in the Republican Party helping to facilitate it. Absolutely right. And there's, you know, in his counterpart in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who is yes. staying more quiet about this, but it was fully within Mitch McConnell's power to make sure that Donald Trump could never run for president again. That was within his power. And he chose to pass on that because he wanted to see if he could win control of the Senate in 2022. And, you know, we know how that turned out, Mitch. So it's like this long list of former Trump administration officials, whether it's John Bolton or Bill Barr or John Kelly or Rex Tillerson or, you know, or Nikki Haley or Nikki Haley. That's a very good point. All of these people who really just kind of stayed quiet when you could see exactly what was happening. Most of us did see what was happening. And uh, here we are. It's gotten worse. And remember, the violent rhetoric was in Trump's inaugural address. I mean, this was years ago at this point, right? talking about this very dark rhetoric. Well, that rhetoric is right back. That's the same rhetoric he was talking about last night in Michigan as he was standing in a non-union auto plant trying to pretend he was speaking to unionized auto workers in Michigan. This dark rhetoric, this violent rhetoric has been there from the beginning. That said, I do think it's intensifying. And you know, I know it we're is. all like frogs in a pot of boiling water and it's hard to really tell. But you know, if I go back and I look through the archives of Political Wire, it certainly does seem to me like it's getting worse. I do agree with you in principle on that. But two points I have. One is very, very little frustrates me more than the people who were cheerleading now doing massive complaining about the reality that they helped bring about, which that's not surprising. I mean, that was what many people thought would occur. Second point is one person who we left out of that list of former supporters who now are attackers was Chris Christie. That's a good one, Chris. And there's something about Chris Christie's approach that, and you even said it earlier, you know, what is Chris Christie running for right now? You know, we're speculating Haley and Tim Scott and 2028 or whatever. Chris Christie feels like he is running in some attempt at redemption. I saw the stat. I think that his approval rating within the Republican Party is something like 10% approve and 69% disapprove. It was a stat on CNN, something close to that. I mean, he is continuing to run, I think, purely for the chance to taunt Trump. Anyhow, out of all of them, it feels like he is trying to seek redemption. He may or may not get that redemption. But while he falls into the group who absolutely helped Trump advance, and he should have known better because Chris Christie knew him, it feels like his whole raison d'etre is to try to taunt Trump. You're not wrong about that. It does feel like there's some redemption here. You know, the problem with this is in a two-party system, there is only a choice between two parties. And so if you want real redemption, and if Chris Christie wants to redeem himself, then he should get on the Biden campaign team is what he should do. You know, there are others who did that. 
John McCain's widow, she got on board the Biden campaign in 2020. And there are plenty of people who have done that, who've decided, look, he's not the guy that I would have wanted. But because they're so nervous and so scared of what Donald Trump could do to our democracy if he wins in 2024, there really only is one other choice at this point. And you know what was interesting was an article this week that even Ralph Nader, the guy who potentially cost the election to Al Gore in the year 2000, even Ralph Nader has decided, despite the fact that he does not like the Democratic Party, he thinks it's just a corporatist party. Even Ralph Nader said he wants to be able to help Joe Biden at this point. So it is really the only path at this point. And if these guys are really concerned about their country, as they say that they are, there's only one other choice at this point. So to me, if you want redemption, that's how you get redemption. Make your best shot. Try to become the Republican nominee. But once you fail, there's only one other choice. That is an excellent point. And I'm going to dial back some of the sense of positivity that I described, because you are right about that. And now is that moment. Fine. Maybe you want to go for Chris Christie. Okay. If you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, somehow you thought maybe you had a chance to actually win. And so, you know, you threw your hat into the ring. Fine. He's not winning the Republican nomination. 69% disapproval within the Republican Party. He's not winning the nomination. You're 100% right. Gaining redemption requires so many different steps, and we could have a whole other conversation on a whole other different type of podcast around not just acknowledging fault and asking forgiveness, but then the hard steps and sacrifices that one then subsequently needs to make in order to gain that type of forgiveness. I want to just make sure that we touch on quickly, as this conversation posts, we will in all likelihood be T minus 24 hours until a government shutdown, unless some miraculous uh, Hail Mary occurs. My curiosity is not really around, will there be a shutdown or won't there be a shutdown? But it's more, this is a conversation about politics. How do the dynamics work out in terms of the politics? You have McConnell, who is clarifying even more the split between the Senate and McCarthy and those House Republicans. The Democrats don't seem to be wanting to bail out McCarthy. McCarthy isn't giving them anything to bail him out with. Where do the dynamics go from here? It's really just as simple as you know, remembering one of those golden rules of politics, which is the divided side is typically the side that loses. In the Republican Party here, whether it's the House Republicans who can't seem to pass even basic rules to consider legislation, who can't consider even their own version of a continuing resolution to keep the government funded, or whether it's the broader congressional Republicans, the split that you just highlighted between Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, or whether it's the split that we've just been talking about between congressional Republicans, the Republican voters, and their nominees for president or their candidates for president. It is a mess. The Republican Party does not have any cohesiveness to it. And that does not bode well for the long-term future of the Republican Party. The Democrats, for whatever their faults are, there is a continuum, an ideological continuum from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin that at least makes sense. That is not seen in the Republican Party. There is a massive split between this corporatist side, this traditional establishment side of the Republican Party, and this fiery populist side, this nationalist side. That is a split that cannot be reconciled. And right now it's tearing the party apart. We're just seeing this in real time play out in the House. 
We've seen it over the years, whether John Boehner was dealing with it or Paul Ryan was dealing with it, or we saw it when John McCain had to pick Sarah Palin as his running mate to try to tie the party together. We're seeing this play out in real time in every aspect of the Republican Party, from the presidential race to passing basic legislation to keep the government funded. And so if there is good news for Democrats politically, it's that their opponents are a complete mess right now. So that makes me wonder, one of your and my favorite old-time cliches, put a fork in it, it's done. And the related line, Dave Wasserman's the political reporter analyst, his line, I've seen enough when he's ready to call a race. When is the fork in it? When have you seen enough? When have we seen enough to be able to definitively say the Republican Party is dead? There's a new Republican Party. Haven't we seen enough? You know, I thought we were getting there after the Bush years. You know, I've talked a lot in the past about how Bush let that Reagan coalition break to pieces and Bush couldn't really pull it together and nobody was able to pull it together. But then Donald Trump unexpectedly came around and seized control of the Republican Party in appeal to a large portion of the party and somehow managed to eke out an electoral college victory. But the situation now is a little more dire for Republicans. Is it being held together by Donald Trump? You know, increasingly, I thought that these forces that we're seeing were bigger than Donald Trump and that when Donald Trump is off the scene, the Republican Party would revert back to something else, or at least some of the wilder forces would be contained and that the party could move on, or at least a party could move on if somehow the party broke apart. But I increasingly think that it's actually, it really is Donald Trump who is holding this thing together this thing that we call the Republican Party. And I think that if Trump were to leave the scene one way or another, whether it's you know a health event, whether he's put in prison, or whether he loses the next presidential election, I think you could really start to see the Republican Party just break apart at the seams because there is no consistency anymore between the party. And parties need that ideological consistency to survive and to put forth agendas. I mean, you remember back in the 2020 election, the Republican nominee, Donald Trump, did not even have a platform in the 2020 campaign. It was literally about Donald Trump and whatever he might be thinking at the moment. And anyone who's paid attention to his Truth Social account knows that that could be anything at all. So it's a great question to ask. The famous quote comes from Ann Richards, whether we can stick a fork in it, he's done or not. I'm not sure if the Republican Party is done yet, but we're getting close. We're getting close. I actually think it is. I am not convinced. I mean, there's a splinter party is old Coke is the old Republican party, but that's certainly something they will come back to. Last point that I have, has Gavin Newsom clearly established himself as the Democratic front runner for 2028? Another interesting question. He's certainly in that top handful. If you look forward to 2028 for the Democrats, Gavin Newsom is there. Gretchen Whitmer's there. But the one that I'm actually increasingly interested in is Andy Bashir in Kentucky. If he wins his election in Kentucky, and not to, we're not talking swing states like Michigan or blue states like California, we're talking a deep red state. And if you've got a Democratic governor who can get reelected in the state of Kentucky, watch out for that guy. I think he could be really the unexpected candidate in 2028 for the Democrats. Wouldn't it be fun to be talking about something new, about uh, up and coming and new opportunities, maybe in either party? But okay, I guess we have a little bit of time till 2028. Until then, I think it's time to put a fork in this conversation. <laughs> well done, Chris. I was going to use something about that. We're going to have to shut down this podcast now. But anyway. <laughs> 
Talk to you later, Tegan. See ya, Chris.